entering the Freedom Hut. Trump fires back at impeachment. A nasty fight over a gender transition case for a seven-year-old. Plus, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wins re-election. And more rich people in China than America? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think they're lousy politicians. But two things they have. They're vicious and they stick together. They don't have Mitt Romney in their midst. They don't have people like that. They stick together. You never see them break off. He knew all about the whistleblower. Why didn't he say? He's a crooked politician. Very bad for our country. This whole thing is very bad for our country. In the midst of that, I'm trying to get out of wars. And we may have to get in wars, too. Okay? We may have to get in wars. We're better prepared than we've ever been. If Iran does something, they'll be hit like they've never been hit before. I mean, we have things that we're looking at. But can you imagine? I have to fight off these these lowlifes. At the same time, I'm negotiating these very important things that should have been done during Obama and Bush and even before that. All right? So that's where we are right now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. President Trump in a press conference yesterday that was classic Trump, pulling no punches, holding back not at all. Uh, it sounded a little bit there like he went from talking about Romney being a fifth column in the Republican Party, essentially, to knowing about the whistleblower. The whistleblower thing was Adam Schiff, just to be clear. So, so he's saying on the one side of it, that was a little bit unclear from the way we set up that uh, intro there. But from the one side, you have Romney, who's supposed to be on on Trump's team to do important things for the Republican Party and for the United States. That's what you would expect from a Republican senator when you have a Republican president. And there's no question that many of the things that Trump has done are right in line with traditional GOP platform, traditional GOP goals. And yet Mitt Romney spends most of his time, it seems, just taking cheap shots at the president, uh, talking about the president's character. And what's amazing is, does Mitt really think that he's the only one that knows that President Trump has personal and character flaws. I, I always think there's a, a degree of not just haughtiness. There, there's an arrogance, really, to some of the never Trump cabal in thinking that we don't recognize that people that support the president's agenda are not aware that he has had a. A an imperfect past. And you know, I don't want to cast too many aspersions because I think a lot of people have imperfect pasts. I mean, we found out that Mitt Romney thinks that he should run around on Twitter as Pierre Delecto. Oh, and don't worry, we will get to Monsieur Trudeau winning re-election to the, today or last night. We'll get to that. What a what a slap in the face to to sanity that was. That's right, Justin Trudeau, part Dieu. But Trump is tired of having to fight battles that Democrats never do on their own side. Yeah, sure, there are disputes and there's pushback internally, but Democrats always keep they always keep their squabbles in the family, in-house. No prominent Democrat ever went against Barack Obama. No, certainly no Democrats 
were trying to destroy the Obama presidency. That would have been unthinkable. And Trump has to do that. And then he also has to deal with Shifty Schiff and this whole impeachment farce. You know, there's this new CNN poll among Republicans. Six percent say they support impeaching and removing the Republican president, also known as never Trumpers. So almost, you know, let's say 94 percent, give or take a couple of points of the Republican Party is like, this is crazy. Uh, but there are still there's still that contingent. I, I can guarantee you that if you looked back at the Obama administration, there was never a point at which five percent of Democrats wanted to remove him from office. Now, I know the Democrats would say, oh, it's because Obama never did anything bad. Really? You need to go over all of that. Now, I would say that President Obama really did exceed his authority and broke down separation of powers laid out by the Constitution. But that was those were political questions. My opposition, and I'm sure for those of you watching or listening, your political opposition to Obama was rooted in policy. It was not an effort to take the system and contort it and weaponize it to get something political that I could not get through the electoral process, which is all the Democrats are doing here. This is the kitchen sink approach. Let's impeach him after the special counsel. The special counsel wasn't enough in terms of its findings to impeach him. And now we have to deal with this. So I understand the president's frustration. I understand why he's looking around saying you have more people in the country right now who are uh, employed than at any time, I believe, in the history of this country. Now. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Can we play, please? Clip 24. Here's the president saying it. African-American, Hispanic, Asian, American have all set records, the lowest unemployment in the history of our country, not just like for 50 years. We have 51 years for the country, and we're going to end up topping that number pretty soon. That'll be historic, too, very soon. If we keep going the way we're doing, I think we will, because the household income is so incredible, the median household income. But if you look, African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, in the history of our country, they have the best unemployment numbers, and they have the best employment numbers. Today, it was announced that we have the most people working in the history of our country, almost 160 million people. How do you beat me in a debate on those numbers? The answer is this whole impeachment circus. The answer is create a perception among the electorate that what's really happening in the country, what the government is doing, and just as importantly, in fact, in many ways, more importantly, what the government is not doing, should not be the those should not be the deciding factors in voting decisions it's what the media the establishment the left-wing democrat progressive apparatus tells you about this president and no level of exaggeration is too much no hysterical shrieks from congress all the way across the newsrooms of the major outlets across the country and different cable channels in hollywood they can say the craziest stuff imaginable the president's a traitor the president's a nazi the president's a white nationalist all of these things without evidence as i like to borrow their phrase without evidence and we're supposed to think that they have better judgment and would do a better job running the country well there's even some concern among Democrats that's emerging right now that they don't have a front runner worthy of the name. Who's been saying that all along? Yeah, Joe Biden's not inspiring the masses. What a shock. 
but we'll get into the possibility of new entrants, including, of course, hello! She's never going away, I keep telling you. She's never, ever going away. She will haunt your dreams, America. She's never leaving. Uh, but Trump also, in his fighting back, no surprise here, has given the, uh, the Democrats something else to work with. So he tweeted today, and this has caused a firestorm this morning. I mean, Trump tweets can direct an entire news cycle. It's pretty astonishing. This is what he wrote. So someday if a Democrat becomes president and the Republicans win the House, even by a tiny margin, they can impeach the president without due process or fairness or any legal rights. All Republicans must remember what they are witnessing here, a lynching, but we will win. That was what the president uh, tweeted. And of course, this is being used as an opportunity to say the president is out of touch, is a racist, is terrible because he used the term lynching. Now, this is where I say... I know I know enough about how this president operates that he's not looking to obey the dictates of the left on language. I, we all know that. But I also feel like his his point here is getting now all chewed up and lost because of the choice of this one of this one word, which I think he had to know would uh, set people off. I also think, however, uh, at least it's it's clear to me that. The president of the United States uses uh, certain words sometimes because he is told not to. That he enjoys being told, sorry, you know, you can't do that. And then saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. I, I think there's a defiance in him, which often is a useful thing for this president because he won't obey the conventional wisdom. But sometimes you have a situation like today where now we're going to have an all day long discourse on whether or not the president or, or anyone should be able to use the term uh, lynching in, in this in this manner. Now, some of you are saying, Buck, what about Justice Clarence Thomas referring to a high tech lynching during his confirmation battle? Another vicious Democrat attempt to uh, undermine an eminently decent and qualified human being for the post that he had. And the response, as you know, is going to be, well, Clarence Thomas is black. Uh, there are many on the left who claim that Clarence Thomas has turned his back on the black community just because he is a conservative. That's also part of Democrat, uh, the Democrat talking points. But now everyone's going to focus in on Trump and, and the impeachment situation and specifically the usage of this word. Um, Lindsey Graham, however, agrees with Trump calling the, the impeachment process a lynching. He says, quote, this is a lynching in every sense. This is un-American. So Lindsey Graham is backing him up on this. You know, you never know what you're going to get with Lindsey Graham. Sometimes he decides to man the bulwark alongside Trump. Sometimes he just wants to invade another country. You don't really know which Lindsey Graham is going to show up on any given day. Uh, you know, now we could have this discussion over the, the fact that lynching, which is primarily affected and was a horrible part of American history, primarily affected African-Americans in the South. But lynching actually was not ex was not exclusively uh used as an extrajudicial uh, murder tool against African-Americans in the South. It was also used in other cases and other places. Um, but once again, the media finds an opportunity to distract or to push the conversation away from the core point here, which is that the country, by the numbers, is doing incredibly well. The things that are supposed to matter, the economy, Trump has even managed to calm things down at the southern border. Despite all of the objections and all the different stuff that Democrats have done, the hashtag resistance judiciary, he 
is doing a lot that is of benefit to the American people. Household income now adjusted for inflation. I think I saw today it's uh, it's 57,000 is, is now what it is adjusted for inflation compared to what it was under the Clinton administration when it was in the 40s. So household income is is way up. I mean, there's so much to actually celebrate in the Trump presidency. Instead, what do we have? Impeach him, imprison him, investigate him, investigate his family members. Uh, This is toxic to politics. This is toxic to our ability to have discussions as adults across the country. And one of the most galling aspects of it all is that the very people that are pushing this toxicity, the left wing Democrats, claim to be the ones defending our sacred institutions. They claim to be the ones that care about fairness and decency in political debates. They are delusional, my friends, but that is what Trump derangement syndrome does. It would have been great, but the Democrats went crazy, even though I would have done it free, saved the country a lot of money. Then they say, oh, but you'll get promotion. Who cares? You don't think I get enough promotion? I get more promotion? Than any human being that's ever lived, I think I get. I think I would have that. I think I can say that fairly safe. It's another part of this that you don't hear much about. We're always being told that the president is trying to enhance his brand and enrich himself. And the president is already a billionaire. And the president is already, at this point, I think you could argue the most famous person on earth. I mean, maybe there's some study that shows that it's, I don't know. It's maybe it's Barack Obama. Maybe it's uh, Michael Jordan or LeBron James or some sports superstar. I I, I don't know. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. For those of you that watch soccer, which is probably very few of you, you know, maybe there's someone who's more recognizable. But I, I don't think at this stage of the game, President Trump. What is he? Seventy-two years old. He really is that concerned with burnishing the brand even more than he already has. Uh, But you can't make that argument because they'll just say Trump is greedy and he's not as rich as he says he is. And to this, I just point out, they've always been unwilling to look at anything Trump does the way a normal person would look at it. This is what the emoluments clause argument, which they're bringing up once again in the G7 Doral, do we call it Doral gate? I don't think it's nearly important enough for that. But the G7 being hosted next year at Doral, everyone's saying, well, this is another emoluments clause. This is just shows you they go and they go digging in the law books for something or they go digging in the Constitution, whatever, wherever it is. They go digging into statutes to try to find something that they can claim the president is doing that is a violation of them. I mean, they'll they'll stretch them desperately. Perfect example. This was the Logan Act violation that was used as the pretext to throw General Flynn in prison and to ruin his career and. Uh, almost, if not successfully or entirely bankrupt him. Uh, But, you know, President Trump doesn't get credit for a lot of the things that he does do. Uh, For a guy who's so, so concerned with money, for example, I mean, he he pointed out, and look, I'm not saying this is a big thing, this is a game changer, but he does give away his entire uh, salary. Producer Mark, can you just let the president have his say on this one? Six. But I give away my presidential salary. They say that no other president has done it. I'm surprised, to be honest with you. They actually say that George Washington may, may have been the only other president to do. But see whether or not Obama gave up his salary. See whether or not uh, all of the other uh, of your favorites give up their salary. The answer is no. They say it's the only one. They think George Washington did, but uh, they say no other. So I give up. It's a lot of money, 
So for a guy that they say can be bought for the price of a diplomat buying a cheeseburger at Trump Hotel, isn't it isn't it worth noting? Isn't it worth just taking a moment to say that he doesn't give away his salary and he also claimed he's going to do the G7 at Doral? And there's a part of me that feels like we shouldn't even have to talk about this Doral nonsense. But it just goes to show you that everything that Trump does is a problem for these people. And then they blame us for not thinking that that must be the case. They blame us. I mean, the, the left will say, you must be a Trump bot. You must be someone who has become deluded by your uh, worship of this Trump figure. And I sit around just saying, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't reach the degree of hysteria. I can't get as upset about everything as liberals get about everything that President Trump does. Every decision he makes, every tweet, they find a way, anything of any consequence, they find a way to make into the the worst thing ever. Um, oh, and even uh, Trump speaking up for Tulsi Gabbard was interesting. Play 13. Other trade deals that we've done, we've done South Korea, which is a fantastic deal for us. Turned out even better than we thought. Uh, South Korea was a terrible deal. Uh, the person in charge of that particular deal, Hillary Clinton, if you've heard of her, she's the one that's accusing everybody of being... Uh, a Russian agent. Anybody that is opposed to her is a Russian agent. So that's a scam that was pretty much put down. Uh, Tulsi, I don't know Tulsi, but she's not a Russian agent. I don't know Jill Stein. I know she likes environment. I don't think she likes Russians. Uh, if she does like them, I know she's not a asset. She called her an asset of Russia. Uh, these people are sick. There's something wrong with them. But uh, I think that uh, Tulsi Gabbard probably got helped quite a bit by this terror. I think we were helped because it shows for two and a half years, we end up winning. I had to go through two and a half years. If she would have done this earlier, people would have realized what a scam it is. Everybody's a Russian or a Russian agent or a Russian asset. I see they've still found ways to make use of some of the uh, never Trumpers that are out there. The Democrats are going to do everything they can to create the kind of internal feuding and political warfare that we've seen on display with Hillary Clinton and Tulsi Gabbard and some others. Uh, you still have these never, I, I, you know, should we give them any attention or not? That's always the question. Is it worth refuting their nonsense or is it better if we just accept that they are irrelevant, that no one cares and that we shouldn't have to deal with them in any capacity? I remember I remember when Joe Walsh was a guy, first of all, he's a radio host. And I remember when he was really too right wing for CNN, which doesn't say all that much, but also too inflammatory for television sometimes in what he would say about Obama. And now he is Mr. Ethics and Mr. Trump is a bad guy. Listen to me about it. Here's a alleged Republican primary opponent for Trump, Joe Walsh, talking about how it's not just him. A lot of Republicans hate Trump. Play 22. It's really important to note, though, I need to say this. Republicans don't like him. Republicans in Congress, they don't like him. They don't fear him. They don't respect him. They do believe he's incompetent. They do believe he's a moron. Everything I say about Trump publicly, the vast majority of my colleagues up on Capitol Hill, they feel the same way about him privately. They don't fear Trump 
but they fear Trump's voters. I was campaigning in Iowa all weekend, and even just talking to Republican voters on the ground in Iowa, they were even bothered by this Doral thing, the G7 thing. The best that they could say was, it doesn't look good. So Republicans in Congress, they fear Trump's voters, and Trump's voters were bothered by what Trump did. That will move them. This is analysis that no one needs to hear, really. Or perhaps it's analysis that's so obvious. Why is this guy on TV or wherever he is saying it? But there are some some aspects of it that I think are worthy of our attention for a moment. For example, Republicans hate Trump, he says. Well, he means Republican elected officials. And Republican elected officials, members of Congress and the GOP are afraid of Trump's voters. Good. They should be responsive to what Republican voters want. This should not be about a club, mostly of guys up on Capitol Hill who get to lord over the rest of us, determine what is best for the what, what, what the real party message should be, what the real aims of the party should be. They're supposed to serve the American people who voted for them. We don't put them there to be our overlords. We don't put them there to give us dictation from up on the mountaintop. We're supposed to be watching them enact policy. They are they're the vessels of the aspirations of conservatism and the right. They are not uh, the, the, the wise elder statesmen that we should all just sit around and be lectured by all the time. Look, a lot of members of Congress are just not very smart and not very impressive. That's true on both sides. It's true of Republicans and Democrats. The best thing they can do is keep their promises to voters. The voters that put them there stay as honest as they can to the platforms that got them elected. And as we know, a lot of people go to D.C. and they become swamp creatures. I just left D.C., I'm still washing some of the swamp off me. Although I was never a lobbyist or anything, but you know what I'm saying. It's very easy to want to be a part of the power set there. It's very easy to want to be a part of the club that gets to make decisions and determinations about what the future of the country is like and feel as though you are separated from a majority or perhaps the entirety of the voters who gave you that power in the first place. So that Republican members of Congress don't like Trump is... Irrelevant in terms of I don't care that they don't like him, but it is relevant insofar as it lets us know that they care more, many of them, about their feelings about this man than what he is doing for the Republican Party and therefore for the American people. Which brings me back to my discussion yesterday, and Trump is clearly aware of this, that there are elements within the Republican system, within the Republican machinery that aren't only up it's not they're allowed to not like anyone's allowed to hold whatever opinion they want about anybody you're allowed to not like trump that's fine but if you're going to be a part of the republican party you should not be working actively behind the scenes to undermine the leader of that party and i do believe there are many republicans who are doing that i don't know how many and i don't know to what extent but we're just aware of what we say i mean obviously mitt romney is quite open about it there are others too who have decided that they cannot be uh, members of the GOP in good standing anymore. They will not work to assist this president in these key endeavors, right? They'd rather talk about how the, the president tweets mean things and says mean things and isn't nice enough. And it's not just uh, people like Joe Walsh who want to discuss that because really what they're hoping is 
is to create the perception among Republican lawmakers that there's enough leeway within the party faithful for some of them to maybe go along with impeachment. I don't think it'll be successful, but I do believe that is what Democrats and their media allies, or is it the media and their Democrat allies, whichever way you decide. Uh, I do think that is what's going on here. Senator uh, Michael Bennett, for example. Mm, Okay, Mm, Michael Bennett. Play uh, clip 15, if you would. You have a lot of private conversations with your Republican colleagues, I know, because you work across the aisle in the Senate. I'm not going to ask you to break any confidence uh, you would have with them, but but I'm curious, are you hearing more private expressions of support for removing this president than we hear publicly from the Republican side? I, I would not say privately that I'm yet hearing private expressions of support, but I am hearing private expressions of people saying they're horrified by the president's behavior. And uh, and they're horrified that he invited Ukraine to, to interfere in our elections. They're horrified that the White House chief of staff uh, admitted that it was a quid pro quo. You're horrified. You're horrified that this other guy did this other thing. And, you know, Ukraine, I mean, you just said, I don't get the information on the guy. Who voted for this guy? That's a question that I would like answered. And notice the sleight of hand there. He didn't say what was said on the phone call, which is the president asked Ukraine to be helpful in an ongoing open DOJ investigation of the 2016 election interference and also to get answers as to whether there's anything relating to Hunter Biden and and Joe Biden insofar as that investigation is duly constituted and ongoing. Instead, he says, oh, they, they invited election interference. You see, what you'll eventually hear, and whatever the Inspector General report, or it's really actually the Durham report out of Connecticut about the origins of the Russia collusion, uh, the Russia collusion conspiracy, which is what it was. It was a true conspiracy against the president. When you hear that, you'll be told, I can almost guarantee you, that it was entirely, that whole investigation is illegitimate. And they've already laid the groundwork for that now by saying that any discussion in the open by the president or others about that investigation is election interference. Meanwhile, having a foreigner, Christopher Steele, collect foreign subsources all over the former Soviet Union, including Ukraine, and run that to our own press and through our own intelligence community to Obama administration appointees who use FISA warrants against Trump campaign against a Trump campaign official. That's all fine. You're supposed to think that that's not a problem at all. Uh, these people are are laughable in their lack of consistency, but we have to take them very seriously in their efforts to uh, destroy and, and undermine this this presidency. Um, that much they have set their minds to, and unfortunately, I think they'll be far too uh, they they are far too dedicated in this process to ever recognize the damage that they are doing to the country along the way. Um, here we have. Oh, I, I I did want to get to this as well. Uh, you had Beto O'Rourke, who did get a little bit... There, There is such a thing as too crazy even for Democrats these days. It's rare. It doesn't happen all that often, but when it does happen, it's pretty interesting. Beto O'Rourke, who has been comparing Trump to uh, Nazi Germany and, and to Goebbels, was asked about this, and here's how, here's how Beto responded. Play 16, please. Is that not going too far to make a comparison between the president of the United States and the Nazis? 
Find me a better analogy of another leader of a Western democracy describing all people of one religion as inherently defective or disqualified or dangerous. And that's what the president has done. But you understand the criticism when you make any comparisons to the Holocaust and the Nazis that, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is simply, at least most people say that is unacceptable. It's the comparison of last resort, and, and that's where we are. And, and I don't mean the last resort politically or the last resort in terms of defeating the president in November, but the last resort for this country that is descending into an open racism and intolerance and violence led by the president. Now, whether he said what, 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 it, whether it's what he said about Muslims or immigrants or the way he treats women of color in this country or the fact that he described Klansmen and neo-Nazis as very fine people. He's just a liar. He's just making he's just living in some alternate reality. The president did not describe the people at the at the neo-Nazis at Charlottesville as very fine people. I've read the transcript dozens of times. He did not do it. The media keeps saying it because they want to talk about a big lie and a repetition of a big lie. That is a big lie. The media keeps saying something that is demonstrably false and untrue, and they know it's untrue. But they're so desperate to make this president beyond the pale. You cannot support him without being a bad person that they'll just lie about stuff. They will just lie. That, that is a lie. What Beto O'Rourke just said is a lie. I think he knows that, but he doesn't care. Also, when he says describing people of one religion as dangerous or defective, when did the president do that? When, when did he describe people of one religion as dangerous or defective? He's never done that. This is always Democrats complain about what Trump says, and then they always offer us up an interpretation of what Trump says instead of the actual words. If what the president says is so bad. Why don't we just hear about what the president said? Why is it always the Democrat? So in other words, remember that uh, BBC lady with Jordan Peterson? But what you're really saying, in other words, no. How about just what President Trump says? But there's a desperation growing, a desperation among the Democrats because they've got to know that these candidates they have. Oh, Warren is their, is their technocrat? Warren's the one who's supposed to lead them to the promised land of a 2020 election victory over Donald Trump. They, they won't they won't pull the rug out from under Joe Biden just yet, but they're starting to get a little little nervous about it. The more we look into Elizabeth Warren, the more clear it is that she is quite radical. She, she's not a centrist Democrat. She's a radical left left of Obama, even Democrat. That's the. That that's going to be the unifying, uh, independent winning, Ohio, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania winning candidate for the Democrats. Elizabeth Warren. The more we find out about what she really thinks and believes, well, a few things become clear. One is that she hasn't really even thought through the implications of some of the things she says she wants to do to transform the country. And. People also now realize Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack. The guy's he's too old for this. His health is not in good enough shape for this. So there's a a quiet transfer, I think, of of aspirations on the left to Elizabeth Warren that has been ongoing. And the media has been warming up to her a little bit. And we're going to forget about the whole I'm one one thousand and twenty fourth Cherokee. So that means I'm a Native American. That was a thing that she did that no one made her do. We're going to forget about that whole thing. But we can't forget about some of the other policies and ideas that she puts out there. And I think that that's also why you have this panic among Democrats. Well, what if none of the 20 candidates we started out with can get it done against Trump? I think there are a lot of Democrats who 
do not think that they can psychologically handle. And I don't mean a lot like just a, a few prominent Democrat politicians. I mean, millions of Democrats across the country would have some kind of a nervous breakdown if Trump won four more years in office. I think that's the level of hysteria and insanity. You know, someone like Beto O'Rourke talking about the, the this is the analogy of last resort, comparing Trump to a regime that killed millions and millions of people, men, women, and children, put them in gas chambers, executed them. I mean, just the worst things, the worst crimes against humanity in history. And he's comparing that to Donald Trump? He's either a moron or a psycho. I mean, Beto, oh my gosh, why do you say such mean things? Well, because it's true. It's a bizarre thing for someone to say and someone to then double down on afterwards. But that's where Beto is. This country, though we may not be in El Paso, Texas, is still racist at its foundation, at its core, and throughout this system. This country, though El Paso is one of the safest cities in America, is still inherently violent. 40,000 gun deaths just last year in America. No other country in the world comes even close to this kind of carnage. 40,000 gun deaths, he says. Uh, a very large number of those are actually, first of all, it's not 40,000. I don't know why he keeps saying a number that's not correct. A very large number of those are suicides, by the way. This country is still racist at its core, Beto O'Rourke says. And this is a guy who is entirely a construct of the media. He was supposed to be able to beat Ted Cruz in Texas. Remember that? More money poured into that guy, Beto O'Rourke's, effort to unseat Ted Cruz in Texas than any other Senate race in history. They're just funneling money to this guy. He's entirely a construct of the elite echelon of the Democrat Party. And he just says crazy stuff. He just says things that are unfair, that are unethical, that aren't based in any objective reality. Uh, but it's also, really, it's also really sad. It's sad that there are so many people on the left who would rather believe they would rather believe that this country is an example of uh, evil racism on the world stage instead of a country where you have tremendous diversity of religion, ethnicity, diversity of every kind. And by and large, we actually get along very well. You start to compare us to other. What's a country similar to America and its makeup that gets along so much better than we do? And where there's so much less racism. Hmm. I, I think that Democrats always take a little too much pride in talking down to their country and downgrading their country in the way they speak about it instead of understanding that they are so lucky to be here. We are all so lucky, we who are Americans, to be in this country at this time of relative peace and booming prosperity and Democrats in their just lust for power will lie about the United States of America and come up with some way to make it sound like this country is in a state of dysfunction and despair. That is just not true. But Democrats are going to try to convince everybody that it is true for the next 12 months. Why is the left trying so hard to eradicate gender? Why is this campaign now gaining so much momentum, so much attention, a lot of force behind it? Every time now you look at a major news website, you open a newspaper, if you still read things old school like that, you see more and more stories that are advancing this agenda. Uh, for example, Always, the company that makes female 
uh, sanitary products, has decided that they're going to remove Venus, the symbol for women, taken from uh, the god Venus, Aphrodite in Greek, Venus in ancient Rome. Uh, They're going to remove that uh, because they don't want it to feel exclusive or exclusionary of trans individuals. So now a company that makes a product explicitly to deal with the female reproductive system wants to remove the symbol of femaleness from it because of the desire for inclusiveness. Uh, the, The NPR of the weekend shared this. On average, people who menstruate spend an estimated $150 million a year just on the sales tax for tampons and pads. To this, I responded on Twitter. Is the word women being canceled? Because there's a word for people who menstruate. It's a very handy, very useful word we've used for a long time. It's quite descriptive. They're called women. But now you will see, and I'm not making this up, you'll see propaganda online from particularly the left-wing journo class where they will be shouting down people saying things like, we, I mean, men have periods too. This has become a, an article of faith on the left. This has become something that we will hear about. Men have periods too. Um, unfortunately, that is scientifically false. That is inaccurate. Men do not get periods. Women get periods. In fact, this is one of the very basic biological distinctions that exist that separate men from women. You've also had this week... A, a transgender uh, cyclist named Rachel McKinnon, who is dominating female sprint cycling, uh, set, a, set a world record, 37 years old, same age as me, uh, set a world record for the 35 to 39 age category in the 200 meter sprint on a cycling bike. So this is just some this is somebody who is biologically male, who is. Beating, and if you look at look at this individual, uh, is is built. Yes, has has died. Oh, I don't know. Do I have to? Am I going to run afoul of the PC police? Do I have to say her? We have to let people pick their pronouns now, right? That's what we're always told. Am I going to get in trouble for this? It's a it's a him. It's a man physically. You can change the name. Rachel is this person's name. No question. You can change your name. Do you get to change your pronouns though? Because you say so. At some point. We might be forced to bend the knee at some point. The uh, corporate world may say, sorry, you have to do what is new in the English language uh, for the millennia or for the centuries, I should say, that it has been around in its current form. Uh, it is it is new to do this, but you better do it or else you better comply or else there will be consequences. I, I don't I don't plan on running up the side of the hill and getting, uh, you know, getting struck down on this one. Someone has to let me know what the real what the real rules are. But this transgender individual um, is is defeating everybody. And it's no surprise because male biology is different than female biology. And we can sit around and people can say that's mean or that's un uh, insensitive. It's unfeeling. How could you? How could you say these things? It's just the truth. Uh, But increasingly, you find that a lot of people do not want the truth. A lot of people on the left reject the truth. They think the truth is mean. And if it's mean or if it doesn't make them feel good, 
then it should be subverted, it should be contradicted, it should be banned, it should be outlawed. Transgender cyclist Rachel McKinnon is dominating female sports because transgender individuals, if the left gets its way, means the end of female sports. That's quite a plan for female empowerment, isn't it? Women can no longer compete just against other women. They'll have to compete against biological males. Ten years ago, when this was raised during the earlier days of the transgender activist uh, movement, we would be told that this was fear-mongering to say this. I remember because I was a part of those conversations. I remember debating this issue, discussing this issue. We would say, oh, but you're going to have 10-year-olds who think that they're female start to use the women's, uh, women's locker room and restrooms at a school? Oh, no, that won't happen. Oh, actually, the Obama administration mandated that it would happen in public schools or else you would lose federal funding. So that's that's how quickly that turned around. Oh, but you would never have someone who's a biological male competing in, say, a, a contact and really dangerous combat sport like mixed martial arts. Oh, no, that happened, too. What a surprise. The biological male who competes against women in MMA is, is not only able to beat them, but it's dangerous to those women. It is truly dangerous to them to step into the ring with that individual. So you have to wonder, well, what's left here? Oh, we have reached, we have reached now the, the latter stage of uh, the transgender movement's extremism. And we see this playing out in the case of a seven-year-old boy in... Texas, not in California, not in Massachusetts or New York, where I'm doing this show right now, in Texas, in Dallas, no less. Jeffrey Younger is a father in Dallas who is trying to stop uh, his former partner, uh, his former, I believe, former wife, although I'm not even sure if they were officially married, um, but to stop his former partner. Dr. Ann Georgilis from transitioning their seven-year-old boy, James, into a female and doing so involving chemical castration and hormone replacement therapy. This is child abuse. This is wrong. It's medically wrong. It's scientifically wrong. It is ethically wrong. And yet a jury has decided that Dr. Georgiulis, who, does anyone want to guess if she's a far left, you know, pro-trans activist individual? I think we all know the answer to that. Dr. Georgiulis should be able to continue on with this quest to transition a seven-year-old boy. And I'm not just saying transition as in speak to uh, this boy with female pronouns and make him wear dresses. And No, they want a seven-year-old boy to take hormone replacement therapy, to take puberty blockers, which, as I've said to you before, nobody really knows the long-term effect of this because there haven't been any studies of this because nobody would have thought 20 years ago or 10 years ago that the medical world would be so radicalized that anyone would even think about doing this. But here we are. I want to tell you the story of Jeffrey Younger and his battle to save his son, James, from transgender uh transgender activism at seven years old so here's what we know of this case of jeffrey younger the 
the father who is desperately trying through the courts to stop the uh, the mother of James, the young young boy who they have joint custody of, uh, to stop Dr. Ann Georgilus from transitioning him, uh, transitioning young James into Luna. Uh, my understanding of this case, and I listened to a lengthy interview that uh, that was done here by Jeff uh, of Jeffrey Younger, where he explained what had happened. Essentially, James, the seven year old, liked the movie Frozen. And Dr. Georgiulis thought that it would be a good thing to start affirming James as a female. Now, there, there is a very clear, a very clear uh, repetition here, a very clear tendency where the only people who have kids who are transitioning to female or, or they believe are, are trans. Remember, seven years old. I wanted to be a triceratops when I was seven. There are a lot of things you think when you're seven that don't or should not be should not be taken seriously by adults adults determine that you should go to school what you should eat when you should go to bed there are reasons for those things oh but here because this is really the last this is really the last vestige of what had been untouched by trans activism up to this point this this is the the final frontier if you will let's start transitioning little kids make them transgender let's have affirmation as determined by with, with court mandates behind it, mind you, of a seven-year-old. This is insane. This is wrong. Any normal person, absent all the propaganda, absent all the, the CNN tweets about how this is so important for you know for affirming one's identity and transgenderism is is a beautiful thing to be celebrated by everybody. And if you don't approve of this, or you even let's just say this. There's a whole separate conversation to be had about whether someone, when they're 18, if they think they're transgender or if they if they are trans. Remember, it is think; it's not a biological reality. So don't ever get it mixed up with intersex. Sometimes I'll try to play that game. They'll move it around. Oh, but what about people that are born with some reproductive organs of both? That's intersex. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that have a psychological distinction that they think they they are born in the wrong body. You know, there's also a, a psychological disorder they call gender dysphoria. Now it's called gender affirmation. It was called gender dysphoria. There's also a psychological disorder where individuals believe fervently to the point of demanding surgery that they should not have a certain limb. And they will demand modern medicine. They'll demand that doctors will uh, remove, you know, this, this arm that I have, I shouldn't have it. I do not want to have this arm. I need this arm to be removed. People say, well, that's not a fair comparison. Really? Is destroying all of your, your body's hormonal balance, which, by the way, just, just putting this out there, they're going to do this to a seven-year-old. When they do this to adults, there are terrible long-term health consequences. And the outcomes overall, and everyone, oh, no one ever, you're not allowed to talk about this. You know, there was one doctor at Johns Hopkins University who was head of essentially the sex change operation, which they don't call it that anymore. It's gender affirmation. He was head of the sex change operation, part of Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore. And he's just been run out of the public square, effectively. He's not because he did this for 20 years and he'll he would tell people he wrote articles. I've read them where he says, look, long term prognosis here for people who have the surgery is not good. Very high rates of depression, high rates of suicide and the, the basic health 
risks that you take, you know, blood clots and, you know, just messing with all kinds of internal hormonal regulatory systems and, you know, uh, weight gain and obesity comes with it and all just all kinds of, you know, I think there's the, the risks of disease increase in so many ways because you're messing with the internal chemistry of your body. No one really knows if this is uh, how, how to do this properly because you're not supposed there is no proper way to do this. You're not supposed to do this. There's no way to, to, to do this in a, in, a, in a sense that doesn't or in a manner that does not have dramatically negative. And that's for adults. You're not going to do this with a seven year old You're gonna start giving them puberty blockers. This is disgraceful, but this is the problem with what starts in. In, on left-wing websites and what you see in the media and, you know, this, this show Transparent and there's all these different efforts out there to convince people that not only is transgenderism something that should have legal protection, but it must be affirmed by everybody else. It's not enough for you to say, all right, you do you, I'm going to do my own thing over here. No, they want, they require the leftist activists of transgender require that you abandon your religious beliefs, abandon what you think is good for your own child in this case, and you have to sing along with the, the chorus claiming that this is a fantastic thing. This is a joyous thing. We should all throw a party because a seven-year-old is going to be affirmed in his, now her, they say, gender. This is not an exaggeration. The court in Dallas up to this point has enjoined this father... Jeffrey Younger, that he is not allowed to dress his son in boys' clothing. Not allowed. Contempt of court if he does. That he's not allowed to try and convince his son that he is, in fact, a boy and will be a normal boy and everything is fine. Not allowed to do that. Not allowed to have the son around anybody who also tries so he can't have another friend or family member who says hey young james you're seven years old you know you're a boy just give it some time and let's talk this through not allowed to do that has to use female pronouns or gender neutral pronouns in public this is by court order i i was stunned as i was reading through this last night stunned this is in dallas texas for those of you out there and i i get this i get your emails i get your messages who think, oh, the crazy stuff, Buck, that mostly, that's not going to come to, you know, my town. I, I live in, I live in Nebraska. I live in Texas. You know, I, I live in, in Indiana. Things here are a little more sane. Mm-mm. Sorry. That's why they always go with this from the media level, national level. They want federal judges to enforce this stuff. They want this to be top down. You're not allowed to have the choice. And so now we have a circumstance where um, this father, I, I just would, I'd be so curious to speak to the people on this jury and just want to know how brainwashed they've been. They've given, or I believe they're about to give today, we'll find out, uh, full custody to Dr. George Julius to make sure that uh, young James is transitioned into a female. Oh, by the way, by court order. James's father is not allowed to call him James. He has to call him Luna. Not allowed. That, that, his legal name is James on his birth certificate, on any documentation. Now has to be called Luna because the, the mom says so. 
uh, Mr. Younger had asked to be the sole managing conservatorship of not just this boy, but also there's a, there's a twin as well. And the, the court uh, denied that. And they've also denied James's uh, or denied the father's efforts here to stop the puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones that are going to happen here. By the way, according to the Mayo Clinic, this is a helpful list. I was trying to think of this before. Possible side effects of feminizing cross-sex hormone therapy. This is, remember, that's for this is for adults because who would think you'd do this to a kid? Here are the, the side effects for adults. Uh, deep vein blood clot, high triglycerides, gallstones, weight gain, elevated liver function, decreased libido, erectile dysfunction, infertility, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and excessive prolactin in the blood. That's for adults. What do you think the endocrine system of a seven-year-old will do in reaction to this? And the, the court that is going along with this should be ashamed. The judge, who is a left-wing female, should be ashamed. None of them are. In fact, the media will celebrate this. They will celebrate destroying this, this young boy's life. You know why? He's just a sacrifice for the cause. It doesn't matter if this ruins his life, if he's miserable, if this ruins his health, mental and physical. They have to establish that transgenderism is just as natural and just as, as normal as anything else that a young boy or girl could decide to do. That's what this is about. From coast to coast to coast, tonight, Canadians rejected division and negativity. You are sending our Liberal team back to work, back to Ottawa with a clear mandate. We will make life more affordable. We will continue to fight climate change. We will get guns off our streets and we will keep investing in Canadians. And tonight, we chose to move Canada forward. Tonight, Canadians have charted a path for the future, and I know we will walk it together. Monsieur Justin Trudeau, who does not sound like this, but we like to pretend here on the Box Extend show. He probably sounds like me when I'm not doing any accent, really, if we're going to be fair. Except he says A, and is a little more, even more polite than me, which is really polite. Monsieur Justin Trudeau is uh, the Prime Minister of Canada once again. Uh, there's some, there's the good news and bad news that comes out of this. Let's start with the good news. The good news. Let's do that. Let's start with the good news is that it's going to be really hard, in my opinion, for Canadians to, it's liberal Canadians, you know, smug left-wing Canadians to look down on us in the United States for having a president who's a little out of the mainstream, a little, a little different eccentric egocentric and eccentric right I, I think that'll be a tougher sell now for canada like oh we have such sophisticated politics in canada look at our prime minister trudeau he's a true statesman mm, i don't know about that do you think that it would have been possible for an american republican we already know northam northam got away with this I would say, though, that Northam's thing was a lot longer ago. Uh, Trudeau's was not very long ago and multiple instances of of dressing in blackface. One of the one of the frustrations I think a lot of us have is we recognize if you were an American Republican politician, not only would your career be ruined based on the photos that we saw of Trudeau, but it would also you'd have to be very concerned about whether you were employable in any kind of job and keeping with your skill set. 
you know, you, you would be you would be probably relegated to very menial work and you might have to change your name. Okay, that's the rea- that would be the reality for an American Republican politician. For a Democrat, it would be considered a hit, but you know, you probably still keep your job and as long as you apologized and made sure that you know you were on the good side of planned parenthood and the uh, the woke police in Hollywood, you would probably be okay. Right? That's So there's there's that component of of this. That's anno- that's annoying because you know, we we would like to either have greater forgiveness and less insanely harsh rules about this stuff for everyone or everyone has to live under the same rules but what the left has managed to create is that the rules that the left lives under are different than the rules that the right lives under and that's the worst scenario that is the worst circumstance right because that that hypocrisy then just it just festers within our political discourse Oh, so they can get away with stuff. Trudeau can be like, I am uh, going to take the guns off the streets and I'm going to make sure that climate change is defeated. The big, bad, terrible climate change. Uh, maybe we should, maybe I should be like, uh, I was going to say Pierre Trudeau, but I think that was his dad. We'd have to come up with, you know, Jean-Paul Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's uh, alter ego. He's uh, slightly more Canadian, French, very tough, very strong. Wears the lumberjack shirt, cuts down the big trees. Uh, but Trudeau is, has managed to win. Now, another part of this I think is interesting is that he, I think as from what I saw last night, at least in the polls, he lost the popular vote. Um, he got less votes in total than his uh, competitor did. And yet, because of the way their parliamentary system works, he, he in fact, has cobbled together the majority necessary to be the prime minister. I mean, here the New York Times calls it Justin Trudeau's anemic victory, uh, and that he just eked out a, a win. Uh, here's some of the, the background on this. Neither the Conservative Party nor the Demo- New Democratic Party nor the Green Party had any leader in the hopper who seemed to be able to compete with Kennedy-esque Mr. Trudeau. Oh, that's quite a description. Uh, who scored photo shoots in Vogue and his own comic book cover. He should have been untouchable for an election or two at least. And yet on Monday, Mr. Trudeau's government was reduced to a minority. His party lost the popular vote to the conservatives. Canada's electoral map is now disturbingly divided between the liberal-dominated east of the country and the conservative-dominated west. Mr. Trudeau will likely depend on the support of other parties to keep his hold in power um so there you have it my friends uh this is a a close a close one for trudeau uh, but it does raise this issue of when when do we get to say that if they're going to have rules where you get a second chance we have to have rules where you get a second chance if violations of politically correct conduct in one's back uh, background stretching back for years, maybe even decades, if that's going to be not a disqualifier for liberals, then I think we have to make sure it's not a disqualifier for conservatives either. And that means a refusal to submit to the dictates of political correctness. Yeah, I mean, people, obviously people when they, I always say this, you don't apologize because the outrage mob comes for you. You apologize if you mess up, if you did something wrong. I mean, Trudeau clearly messed up. Some people should still make amends based on their own their own actions and the need to have integrity and and to be honorable or try to restore some honor. 
but we're never going to get to a, a, a fair a fair place, a level playing ground in politics or in public life if this is able to continue. I mean, you know this. No Republican would have been able to stay in public life after those photos came out of Justin Trudeau. And yet the uh, liberals of Canada, and I know Canada is a different country from America, but come on. Canada is like America Jr. Let's be serious. You know, it's right there. They speak they speak American pretty much. They're right there, close by. There's some Canadians who listen to this show right now. They're furiously, they're, they're wiping the maple syrup off their fingers, putting aside the hockey stick and furiously typing at me that, how dare, how dare you, sir, eh? Compare Canada to America and say it's America Junior. Now, we love Canadians. You guys are like our cousins to the north. But Justin Trudeau, man, we knew this was going to happen. I told you he's going to win. It's, it's not even going to matter that he's, that there's uh, such a, a fraudulence, really, to much of the lecturing and the social justice posturing. Uh, do you think Justin Trudeau, and, and I know this is more just me postulating here, do you think Justin Trudeau? would have been someone who was forgiving and showed grace in response to someone else in politics having the fun. No, I don't think so at all. And I think that that's really part of the liberal mind, that they don't see their own conduct, even when it violates their own standards, is somehow always more justifiable. The conduct of the other, though, must be destroyed. The conduct of the other must be punished to the most severe degree uh, imaginable and possible. I will say uh, President Trump last night did tweet out. Let me see if I can find it real quick. He tweeted out a uh, a congratulations to Justin Trudeau. There was nothing in it that was snarky or that looked sarcastic. But I, I do think that Trump particularly enjoyed, especially because the media in this country is always saying all these terrible things about him. Have they have they changed their minds about about Justin Trudeau, the man who dressed in blackface so many times. Megyn Kelly was fired from her job because she said that back in the day, some people would like have their kids dressing up as a, as a character and that that wasn't, you know, there weren't. She tried to just get into the nuance of blackface as a discussion and was fired. And the libs were all saying, oh, yep, sorry. You know, can't have anybody who doesn't understand how serious blackface is as an offense. Jimmy Kimmel used to dress in blackface as Carl Malone on his show. And actually, he was black, he painted his face black, painted his entire body black. And no sanctions against him. Now, again, I'm fine with people being able to say, I'm sorry. You know, what I did was inappropriate. I've moved on. I've grown. I'm better, whatever. But that has to be open to all of us. We, we cannot, you know, we're going to need a divorce from liberal, liberal America soon if they continue to think that they can have one set of rules and we will have another. That's going to be a problem for us. It already is a problem, but it's just going to keep getting worse and worse because uh, they over time, they embrace, they normalize the hypocrisy. That becomes the standard. The standard is that they can be hypocritical and that people that agree with us ideologically, you and me, even if you're a private citizen, you might have to be sacrificed on the funeral pyre of wokeness at some point that may happen to you I'd, I'd rather we address this now and understand that people make mistakes people say stupid things do stupid things contrition should be uh, always be weighed in these in these situations and you know we, we should all try to be as forgiving of each other as we possibly can 
doesn't mean living a life without consequence, but it means being forgiving, being forgiving when there's room for forgiveness instead of this situation where Trudeau gets forgiven. Nothing Trump ever does, for example, will be forgiven by our media or the Canadian media, which is, I would note, pretty obsessed with Trump. Sometimes I, I see what's going on in some of these Canadian websites. You think like Trump is a bigger deal than anything going on in their own country. You know, Trump is this larger than life figure next door. So uh, Trudeau wins the prime ministership by a hair. By his uh, perfectly coiffed hair because he's uh, Mr. Uh, liberal handsome man that will just get away with everything going forward. Apparently, my friends. Do you agree then with Senator McKessie that it would have been inappropriate to withhold the military aid unless uh, this political investigation was pursued? George, it, I'm, I'm telling you what I was involved with. I'm telling you what um, I saw transpiring and how President Trump uh, was working to make the evaluation about whether it was appropriate to provide this assistance. But that's what I'm what I'm asking is, would it be appropriate to condition that? Yeah, George, I'm not going to get into hypotheticals and secondary things based on someone what someone else has said. George, you would have never done it when you were the spokesman. I'm not going to well, do it. Here today. Except it's not a hypothetical. We saw the chief of staff. The it, it is, George. Staff you right just there. said if it, you, George, you just said if this happened, that is by definition a hypothetical. The chief of staff said it did. The chief of staff, meaning Mulvaney. George, you asked me. The chief of staff, meaning Mulvaney here, uh, was trying to say that there was a corruption investigation based quid pro quo component of reviewing the aid that we give to Ukraine. Now, I know that that's a complicated way of of describing it or that seems like a lot of words. But what the Democrats keep saying is just not true. Their version of what transpired in that conversation, they always change the words around. They do what Adam Schiff did. Let me pretend that I'm telling you what was said when I'm really saying something else. And what I'm saying are things that are more damaging than what the president said. This is the game that they play now. It's a very dangerous one. Uh, I would note that not only did... uh, did this come up in the context of uh, Secretary of State Pompeo talking to uh, George uh, Stephanopoulos, but also Mitt Romney. Mitt taking a moment to back away from Pierre Delecto, friend of Justin Trudeau. Maybe maybe that's who, maybe my Justin Trudeau is actually Pierre Delecto, internet troll and Canadian man of mystery. Remember that was Mitt Romney's alter ego online that we've all discovered in the last couple of days? Because when you're a sitting United States senator worth hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah, you need a sock puppet Twitter account to snark at people and to pump up your own reputation online. It just seems crazy to me. Um, but Secretary of State Pompeo was talking about the possibility of, of that hypothetical. Mitt Romney, meanwhile, is trying to be as unhelpful to President Trump as possible. Play clip 20. Going on TV and saying, China, will you investigate uh, my political opponent uh, is wrong. It's a mistake. Uh, it was shocking for the, in my opinion, for the president to do so and a mistake for him to do so. I can't imagine coming to a different point of view. We certainly can't have presidents asking foreign countries to provide something of political value that is, after all, against the law. Something of political value against the law. Oh, we're back to the pretense that we're going to make this a campaign finance violation there, Mitt Romney? That's never going to stand up. That's never going to work. And the request for an investigation, I thought Democrats were obsessed with this. I thought they loved this idea. Oh, yeah, we need to investigate. We need to get to the facts. We need to find out everything that's going on here. 
a request for an investigation is not is not illicit if there's a basis for the investigation. We just went through a special counsel on a with a faulty basis. And now they're lecturing us about illicit investigations for political purposes. Does any serious person really believe that the special counsel wasn't a giant gift to the Democrats? And the basis for it was was lies. The dossier's lies. The way that they set up Papadopoulos and Carter Page, this was all this was all a scam, a conspiracy. Hunter Biden getting a billion dollars out of China because his dad was the vice president. I mean, that, I think you're allowed to look at that. I think people are to ask questions about this. I, I do not accept a lot of Republicans that are out there saying this. I do not accept that just because a Biden does it means you can't investigate it. And I also don't accept that just because you want an investigation that is rooted in a reasonable suspicion that would negatively affect Joe Biden, you're not allowed to do that. The Obama administration was investigating Donald Trump while he was a candidate. There's, there's no political benefit there. I mean, are you kidding me? By the way, speaking of quid pro quos, I only have a, about a minute for this one, but um, they had said this. Oh, you can't have quid pro quos in foreign policy. I pointed this out yesterday. Well, Elizabeth Warren had a, a quid pro quo here that she discussed uh, pushing around the state of Israel. Producer Mark, please play clip two. Question about Israel. Will you make American aid conditional on a freeze to settlement building? Yeah. Right now, uh, Netanyahu says that he is going to uh, take Israel in a direction of increasing settlements. Uh, that does not move us toward a two-state solution. It is the official policy of the United States of America to support a two-state solution. And if Israel is moving in the opposite direction, then everything is on the table. And you would be prepared to Everything is on the table. Everything is on the table, including cutting off aid to Israel. If they don't do what we say, we're going to cut off aid. That's right. Not just to the millionaires and the billionaires. We're going to cut it off to all of Israel. Uh, okay. That sounds like a quid pro quo in foreign policy to me. Do what we say or else we're going to take away your money. So it does happen all the time. Oh, I'm glad we can establish that. <gasps> there was a quid pro quo. Yeah. Happens all the time. And quid pro quos have lots of benefits for lots of people. But... It was fun for Democrats for a week or so to act like that was unheard of. Oh, how could you try to bully this foreign country into doing your bidding with our money? That's why we give them aid. Let's talk about the movie Joker, shall we? Joker was something that uh, we were told was going to be an invitation to violence, that the movie Joker would be uh, something that as we going forward look at you know, the, the history of movies out there and how they could inspire violence. It, it would be one of the ones that you'd have to think about right away. There was a lot of really fevered speculation about how this movie was going to lead to terrible stuff. Nothing happened, of course. I saw the movie and I just want to share a few thoughts on this. I don't do a lot of movie reviews on the show. I rarely go to movies. I will say this. I went to a movie theater and they had assigned seats. And the seats, producer Mark, have you have you had this experience? I grew up going to movies with my parents all the time in New York, and I couldn't see over the person's head in front of me. You were packed in there, shoulder to shoulder, not enough leg room. The seats were kind of gross, smelled like stale popcorn and Twizzlers. You know, it, it just wasn't a pleasant experience, really. But you had no choice if you wanted to see a movie as in the theaters. This movie, this chair reclined. 
it was assigned seating. Yeah, this is very common now. Bob. This is common now? Yeah, this is everywhere. This is my first- Not as much in Manhattan, though. A lot of the theaters in Manhattan are still those old theaters because they're going to sell tickets no matter what. They're in the middle of the city. But they're still all assigned seats now, yeah. This was my first ever experience in this new era of comfortable seats and big comfortable seats that recline and assigned seating, too. Because one of the things I always hated was when you walk in the theater, especially if you're there with somebody or you're with a group of friends and you're trying to find a place to sit down and you can't find anywhere to sit. That's not an issue. Now it's like you're at a baseball game. You go to your seat. Go to, you know, M15 yeah. or whatever. You can show up on time. You don't have to watch all the previews if you don't want to. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of previews. There are. There's too. so many previews. There were too nowadays. many. That was a thing recently where they were talking about there, too, there were too many. Pre- it was like 30 minutes of previews, man. I was sitting there all day looking at previews. I yeah, can't if even, the movie's at 1 o'clock, it's really one thirty. I can't even remember all of them. All I can remember, though, is that the Star Wars preview looks terrible, dude. Looks terrible. I'm not a Star Wars guy. You're not a Star Wars guy? No. I like the originals, but this Star Wars just—it's just it's just, go- it's just garbage, garbage. Uh, anyway, so so the theater was really nice. I checked that part of it out. That was that was kind of cool. Although we do need somebody who stands there and doesn't allow people to talk, because people get all cozy. They get in their big comfy chair, their assigned seat, and they think the worst is that people think that when it gets loud, that's when you really want to talk. So it's like the soaring music comes in, or there's like a really intense scene, you know, like the car chase scene. They're like. Yeah, so because it's loud in here, I'm just going to, you can hear them. It's like, shut up. I do not want to hear the, you know, when they're doing the thing, when they're talking and, you know. Living room, living room syndrome. Yeah. They think they're in their living room. It's not your living room. So that's not really about the Joker movie, but I I was, because I'm somebody who, I stopped going to movies because I thought it was such a, a negative, it's just a bad user experience. And I love watching a flat screen on my big couch. Like, my couch is basically half my living room. I have a giant couch. I'm one of those people who's like, I want a giant couch. I don't want a little fancy couch. It's like, oh, are we going to have tea on my fancy couch? No. I want a big couch. Like, I live in a suburban house, except I live in a shoebox. Big, comfy couch. Big, comfy yeah, couch. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, exactly. You need a big, comfy couch. So, uh, the, the theater situation was better than I thought. All right, and then on the movie Joker itself. I grew up liking comics reading some comics but definitely watching all the different comic shows i mean I'm, i watched the old x-men cartoon that was on on saturday mornings back in the day i watched the uh, spider-man cartoons i was i liked all that marvel and dc universe stuff and I, i'm sure a lot of you do too so for me the way that they created a backstory for a character that there's already been a tremendous amount of uh, of content created around was pretty was pretty impressive it was pretty solid and to take on a role where you're immediately going to be compared to Heath Ledger's Oscar-winning role was also, I think, a pretty bold move. But I was Joaquin Phoenix definitely pulled it off. Definitely pulled it off. And what the, what you see in the movie, and I think that there are real lessons from this. I think that this is important for people to see. You you see the creation, in a sense, of uh, a monster. Right? I mean, not that any human being can ever fully become a monster, but you see, you see the creation of a monster through frustration, negative circumstance. Uh, in this case, uh, a big dose of of dangerous mental illness. But but you see the way that he it, he really transitions into somebody who is a dangerous, violent maniac, and they do it uh, they do it in such a way that you f- you think about it afterwards. You know, you, you wonder, you think, well. What should the Joker, you know, what should this this character have done in response to the circumstances of having 
uh, an abuse, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away. Apparently, we maybe read a spoiler recently on the show, but it's not really a spoiler. If you see the movie, it doesn't really matter. Um, I think you can see it all coming a mile away anyway. Uh, but so on, on the production value side of it, the acting side of it, Joaquin Phoenix carries the movie. He's it's just a, a character study and he does a phenomenal job. I've thought he was excellent ever since he played Commodus in Gladiator. Why don't the people love me? I will give them games. Um, he was so good. Now they love Maximus for his mercy. I've seen that movie way too, way too many times. Uh, it's a, it's a great, that's a timeless, that's a timeless movie. That's one of those things that's on. If Gladiator's on TV, on just normal channels, whatever part of the movie, I probably will watch it. It's one of those. It's up there with Tombstone. I, Tombstone, it could be the first 20 minutes, the last 10 minutes, doesn't matter. I'm watching it. I'm your Huckleberry. It's the best. The best. Um, but back to uh, the, the Joker film, it wasn't really that violent. It was way less violent than I was anticipating. And what I thought was so interesting, and, and one of the reasons I want to talk about it on the on the show, was the way that it was set up. It was supposed to be, we were supposed to believe that this was a incel, white man rage justifying movie. And it absolutely was not that. And, and there's no reasonable way to go from A to B there. There's no reasonable way to look at this movie and say to yourself, yeah, that's what was going on. Yeah, it was um, it was about justifying, uh, you know, either like white nationalism or white supremacy and incel. You know, there's been some of these guys who are involuntary celibate. That's what incel, that's what incel means. Essentially, their frustration with the opposite sex uh, leads them or, or that that's the, the spark in their deranged minds for becoming uh mass shooters there have been a few cases of this um but it's not that either uh this is this is a very sad and troubling story of somebody who was given a bad a bad deck of cards to start with and then plays those hand plays that hand poorly and makes bad makes some bad choices makes bad decisions and i didn't think the violence was too extreme but i just also thought that the left-wing version of this movie um, shows you that they can find things. They'll, they'll find narratives where they do not exist. We know that from politics, but they'll do it even in in film. If anything, the Joker movie was... If Joker was a... If, if Joker had politics from this movie, he's a, he's a democratic socialist. I mean, the Joker's a, a Bernie Sanders supporter. He's an Elizabeth Warren supporter. He's not a Trump supporter. That's for sure. Trump would be like, this guy's a loser. That's what the, that's what Trump would say about him, and he is a loser, and then he turns into a homicidal one at that. Uh, but it was a, it was worthwhile, and the way they wove in some elements of of the existing DC Batman storyline into it, it, it was very good. It was very well done. Have you seen it yet, by the way, producer Mark? Not yet. I'm going to go this weekend. Yeah, you should definitely check. Yeah, it. I need I want, to. We'll want to hear. It. Let us know what you think. About I will. It. I think you'll. I I give it like uh, B plus A minus. You know, now, how come you'd go see a Joker movie, but God forbid you'd see uh, the Avengers movies? I mean, the Avengers movies are trash for people oh my that God. they're trash, dude. They're not. It's just you're wrong. It's just all CGI and and really bad jokes. But, so there was you know, no CGI used in the Joker movie at all. I, I very little. I, uh, I don't know. Come on, very little. I there's, haven't seen it yet, you know but I'm is? sure there's plenty. You know what there is, Bruce Mark in the Joker movie that I appreciate acting. There's acting in the Marvel. No, movies. there is that's, plenty. It's, the problem here is, unfortunately, the audience is going to agree with Bruce or Mark that all oh, the because they make yeah, a the billion. The audience is smart. They on make this a subject. billion dollars and blah blah. Yeah, whatever. 
I, the only thing that's worth watching in any of those Avengers movies is Robert Downey Jr. I'm just going to say it. Hulk smash. Come on. How many times we got to hear that? And there's always like. He even says Hulk smash once. No, he doesn't say that. I'm saying the other. I meant the Hulk. He says that. Mm. Like a few no, times. No, he doesn't. Whatever. All right. So you've, you've heard producer Mark likes the Avengers movies. So you can light us up in the comments and let us know if you agree or disagree. I find, I find them unwatchable. And I'm somebody. I like the Batman trilogy. Although the third one is people of Gotham. I mean, the third one, there's some ridiculous stuff going on there. Uh, I, I like Blade. I like uh, that. That's a throwback. That's, I think that's among Wesley Snipes' finest works. Blade. It's a good flick back in the day. And the original, uh, the original Iron Man is very good. All right. I'm, I've turned this into a longer movie review than I meant. See the Joker. It's good. It's worthwhile. Makes you think about some things. And um, it, will, it will affect you. And and, uh, and it's and it was not it did not lead to any mass shootings. That's crazy. Senator, um, this plan that you're introducing uh-huh. today, the wealth tax is going to pay for this and other things. Yes. So, how uh, is your uh, Medicare for all proposal going to be paid for, though, if without the wealth, t- wealth tax? So, uh, as I've explained, the wealth tax will pay for universal child care, all the way through canceling student loan debt. It's about an investment in an entire generation. Uh, over the next few weeks, I'll be coming out with a plan about the costs of Medicare for all and how we can pay for it. My friend PJ O'Rourke uh, works with me. He's the editor-in-chief. I'm, I'm a, a, a writer for a project called American Consequences. It's free. You can sign up for it, and uh, I hope you do. Uh, I write, for, I write the, a piece a week for them and usually a monthly feature as well. PJ's got a great piece on Elizabeth Warren, who uh, my wealth tax is just going to take from the rich and it's going to pay for all the child care across this nation. Uh, there's some interesting stuff that PJ writes about here on Elizabeth Warren's real plans for you. Here's what my friend PJ O'Rourke writes in American Consequences. Uh, As scary words go, I have a plan for that is right up there with hold my beer. Warren thinks we can improve our economy by returning personal and corporate income taxes to Clinton era levels. Are higher taxes good for the economy? U.S. GDP per capita adjusted for inflation, forty four thousand three hundred and fourteen dollars in 1998. Fifty seven thousand. So this is GDP per capita, not household income. That was a mistake I made before on the show. Fifty seven thousand eight hundred and twenty one now. Warren also wants to impose a wealth tax on the net worth of individuals, 2% on 2% on net worth above $50 million and 3% on net worth above $1 billion. The current yield on two-year treasury bonds is 1.5%. For a conservatively invested billionaire, that means a 200% tax on income on top of the income tax he or she is already paying in anything except politics We'd call this stealing. But don't try to take the money and run. Warren proposes a 40% exit tax on expatriation of wealth exceeding $50 million. The island that Wall Street's money to will be living on won't be Grand Cayman. It will be Rikers Island. Warren doesn't seem to like rich people very much. Never mind that according to public financial disclosure forms, she and her husband have a net worth between $4 and $11 million. End quote. PJ taking PJ O'Rourke here, my my friend and colleague, uh, taking Elizabeth Warren to task for this. The wealth tax is going to set up all kinds of uh, dislocations in the economy, 
and create a new regime where the IRS is not going to just be looking at what you make, we'll be looking at what you have and assessing based on that how much you're going to pay. The wealth tax may start at 2%, but maybe then it goes up to 4%. Maybe then the idea becomes nobody, and I've heard people say this, you will hear KG Progressive say this out loud, nobody should be worth more than $10 million, they'll say. Nobody needs more than $10 million. You might say, why not $100 million? Well, because they say so. The same mentality that believes that central planning by the government will lead to good outcomes thinks that we can just pull a number out of the air and that's all you need. That's the that's the max net worth that would appeal to people, right? Or that or I'm sorry, that would be acceptable for people. Whether it appeals to them or not is a whole different matter. Um, but Warren is in many ways quite radical. Uh, PJ goes on to talk about her plans for corporations. Um, quote, Warren has proposed that large corporations should be required to allow employees to elect 40% of corporate board members. And that's how somebody's brother-in-law wearing flip-flops, cargo shorts, and a Patriots jersey ends up at the board table scratching his stomach and drinking a beer. You can't blame the guy from the loading dock who nominated him. His wife had been on, uh, had been on him for years to get her brother a job. She also proposes limiting the gender pay gap, PJ writes, with the Paycheck Fairness Act legislation. And Warren thinks the federal minimum wage should be $22 an hour. Folks, this stuff is all really going to have, that would have dramatic effect. Now, I know you say, Buck, but she'll need the legislature to go along with her. And well, what we know about Democrats is that sometimes they'll just do things by executive fiat. Sometimes there'll be a determination made that they can't wait. But if you want to see, if you want to read more of PJ's essay there, AmericanConsequences.com, that's that's where you can uh, read it. And I write there too. And you can sign up for their newsletter. I send a newsletter out every week. It's very cool um so uh you can check it out oh by the way the concern over elizabeth warren i think is what has led in part to the possibility of some very late entrants getting into the race there are people now there there are some stories out there now uh like here's one from the new york times quote mrs clinton and michael bloomberg have both told people privately in recent weeks that if they could win, if they thought they could win, they would consider entering the primary. She has not given up. Do not believe anybody who tells you otherwise. Do not, you know, don't let the propagandists change your mind on this one. She has not decided that she needs to accept a future in which she will never be president. It's, it's just not there. It has not happened. Her belief very clearly is that she did win the 2016 election, even though she didn't. And she may be the only candidate in her mind who can fully unite the Democratic Party and defeat Trump. And therefore, in Hillary Clinton's, oh, my gosh, world. She is the necessary candidate for this moment, not just a candidate, the necessary candidate. It doesn't require that much uh, thinking like a liberal to get us there. This is not a, a, a massive departure from what Hillary is already saying in public and what we're already seeing. In fact, the, the New York Times had a, a published a piece about uh, Hillary, about whether she's a master troll, whether she is excellent at trolling people now. Um, master troll question mark. 
Freed of the constraints of public office, Mrs. Clinton seems to be living her best life. There are still Hillary superfans all throughout the media. They haven't given up either. I'm not saying it's like you've heard me. I think I've said 10 or 20 percent chance Hillary enters the race. It's still very much a chance. And when you see Joe Biden fading, uh, Bernie Sanders is not healthy enough, nor is he compelling enough really as a candidate. Elizabeth Warren seems like big harsh. She talks like this and she looks like someone you could sit down and have some nice chamomile tea with. Uh, She's radical. And the rest of the Democrat candidates aren't getting any traction. So is there a future in which Hillary Clinton maybe does jump into this thing? I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you it's a no. And more importantly, neither will Hillary Clinton. For the first time, there are now more rich Chinese than rich Americans. China now accounts for 100 million of the richest 10 percent of people in the world. There are 99 million Americans in the same category. An interesting statistic here from, yes, from CNN, from their business section, that if you look at the the 10% of the wealthiest people in the world, there are more Chinese who fit into that 10% than there are Americans. And this is the first time that that has ever happened. The U.S. still has many more millionaires, 18.6 million or 40% of the world's total versus 4.4 million in China. And it's adding millionaires faster. Uh, but And the average American is still much richer than their Chinese counterparts. U.S. wealth per adult is $432,365 compared with 58544 in China. But China is growing rapidly. And the Chinese entry into the middle class is having major impact on global markets and on geopolitics, uh, because now you have hundreds of millions of people in China who've been lifted out of poverty, and they're going to have their own aspirations, goals. And yes, this will play out at the nation state level as well for China. I just wanted to share with you, I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who is a a very knowledgeable China expert, speaks fluent Mandarin. And and he was saying to me that things have changed in China uh, dramatically. That it used to be the Chinese attitude, uh, uh, the Chinese attitude on the mainland was if you were a visiting American, and I'd heard this before too, they were so happy to see you. There was such a sense of... Um, uh, such a sense of being pleased that there are anyone's willing to even visit and go see China and experience its culture. And that was true through the 90s and the early 2000s. But there, there's been a change now. And a lot of Chinese, and this is coming from their, they have a very locked down state propaganda media. Uh, a lot of Chinese are being told that there are external forces that are trying to hold them down. That America is trying to box them in and prevent them from finding, you know, from achieving their true destiny, and that the Chinese people are on a pathway to become the world leaders in everything, in everything, the wealthiest, dominant military power, dominant culture, and America is the one thing that's standing in their way, and that has resulted in a change in attitudes, a widespread change in attitude, particularly in the cities, the major cities in China, about. Americans, even on an individual level, 
that there is a much it's much more likely this is again this is a friend of mine who lived in china for years saying that it's much more likely that you would experience hostility from uh from chinese nationals now when you visit than you were than you would before that there's much less of a sense of wonder and excitement about anything american that our our culture is considered more invasive now in many ways than something that was uh, admirable and desirable even. They have their own way of doing... Now, I'm not saying this is everybody. We're speaking about a country with a billion people, but this is a much more prevalent uh, much more prevalent perception among the Chinese. And I've heard this from other people. And I'll tell you, I feel like I experienced a little bit of this as well just when I was visiting there for a week. You, you come across rural Chinese visiting Beijing... And they see an American and they smile and they want, but you deal with Chinese in Beijing day to day and they're, they're not, they're not looking to, uh, help you out. In fact, in Shanghai, uh, you deal with a lot of people who the second they see you're a Westerner, they're just trying to rip you off. And that was told to me by people running businesses in China, that there's just a sense of if you rip off a Westerner, a foreigner, even if it's a, an expat who's living in, in Shanghai, that's fine. You're, you're just kind of evening the playing field a little bit. It's. It's a it's a much more aggressive, much more nationalistic uh, culture you're dealing with in China than you used to have. And th- this is from people I know. And they're saying that, you know, just look at how they wield Chinese financial influence to shut down conversations in the NBA and look at the way that they will uh, harass and suppress academics who speak ill of China or who are critical of, of the Chinese approach to anything. My friends, we have been asleep at the wheel as a country and seeing what's going on here with China and being willing to confront it. And I know that President Trump, in a lot of ways, you know, he is he's a blunt instrument. But with the China situation, he was the first one who was really willing to say this has got to stop. We have a real problem. He has been ringing the alarm bell on China, not just as president, but for many, many years before it. He has been right. This is a country that is going to pose very serious not just economic challenges for us, but down the line, it's going to be security challenges. And I don't just mean stealing our intellectual property. I mean, we're going to have to be worried about a China that is building bases all over the world, that's flexing its muscles all over the world. It wants global dominance and global dominance through a system that is truly authoritarian, really totalitarian, wants to control your thoughts, your speech, the social credit system that's in place that tells you whether or not you can get good dates online. I mean, they have really taken this stuff to a new level and it doesn't look like they're going to collapse or have a massive financial reset anytime soon Uh, it's slowed down a little bit because the trade war with america but if anything the trade war that has been ongoing has raised awareness to borrow from the left about the real challenges that china poses to us real challenges that we face from china so when you see these statistics about the percentage of the wealthiest 10 percent of the world that are from china It is a reminder that they are gaining on us and their intentions. This is not this is not like the EU being a bigger, you know, the EU is a bigger economy than the United States. But it's a lot of countries put together. That doesn't keep us up late at night. We don't worry about that. You know, no one thinks no one thinks that uh, we're going to have to worry about the French invading us anytime soon or the French building a blue water navy to rival ours and then kick us out of whole areas of of the ocean. Uh, Those are real concerns with China. Uh, and what is China going to do going forward with Taiwan? And what is it going to, you know, th- I think the best strategy that we have 
other than recognition that China is a competitor, a true near peer competitor, not some country that we just need to be strengthening ties with all the time and let do whatever, let them do whatever they want to our economy, to our intellectual property. We want the we want to be as close as possible. I mean, I, I think that the U.S. focus on closer ties with India should be much, uh, much more, uh, a much stronger effort. And also the U.S. effort to build up the so-called literal, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L. I don't know why I spelled that out for you guys all know it, but just reminding myself, states like the Japanese, the Philippines, or the you know, South Korea, you look at all these different Malaysia, Vietnam, all countries that we want to be self-sufficient, powerful, and a block on Chinese ambitions because we want balance in that region. We do not want one hegemon that's pushing everybody around and getting its way all the time because if that happens, there's only other there's only one hegemon that they can look to beyond their near near uh, abroad, and that's going to be us. And we are heading for. A real, we're heading for a showdown with China. It's just a question of when it happens and how it happens. And I think that there's a greater awareness now, and you've there's been a change in Chinese nationalist mentality that even if you're just a tourist showing up there, you may be quite aware of it. And I've been speaking to people that are telling me that's exactly what's going on. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to send us thoughts, please do. Uh, that's how we get the roll call going here. Let's start it off with my man, Andrew, who writes, Buck, I installed the Pluto app on my Apple TV exclusively because of your presence. I've been OG Team Buck before it was a thing, as evidence to the screenshot in this email. Um, yes, I enjoy the show as much now as I did when you filled in for Glenn on July 18th, 2013. And I stand by my original claim that you are the legitimate heir to Rush Limbaugh. Shields high from Wowo land, Andrew. Well, Andrew, man, thank you so much. That is very high praise and is really kind of you and, and appreciated. And Andrew sent me a screenshot from, wow, from July of 2013. I can't believe I've been doing this as long as I have. He wrote to, uh... Glenn, this is when I worked for Glenn Beck. Glenn, I'm really enjoying Buck Sexton as a fill-in host today. His points and analysis are brilliant. He reminds me of a young Rush Limbaugh. Regards, Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much, man. You have certainly been OG Team Buck, and we like to say uh, OSS for Original Saturday Squad. Um, but thank you so much for writing in, and uh, the kind words always are appreciated, guys, because in the media business, you get a lot of people telling you, not good enough not big enough, not whatever enough. And the only thing that really keeps you going a lot of days, the only thing that keeps me going a lot of days is all of you who listen and watch. That's it. Uh, and the desire to avoid getting a real job. David writes, you do the best Beto. I've never heard anybody else even try to do his, his accent or his voice, probably because they can't even come close to you. Got to work on your Elizabeth Ward a little bit. Wow, excuse me, sir. Ask producer Mark if you sound a little like Tolly from South Park? I don't know who that is. Who's Tolly from South Park? I don't know who that is either. Oh. Love your show. I listen to a lot of talk radio, and out of all of them, you are the closest to Rush with your real-world analysis. 
Uh, thanks, David. Uh, well, thank you so much, David. That's very kind. Another Rush comparison. You guys do me great honor with that. And uh, thank you so much for writing in and saying all of the kind things. Chris, we're doing emails today because we did Facebook yesterday. If you want to send Facebook messages, though, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton and uh, teambuck at iheartmedia.com for the email address. Chris writes, hey, Buck, my daughter was invited to a three-day ACLU camp. Huh. I tried to explain to her why it wasn't a great idea, but then when I searched the internet, I found that I supported many of their positions on free speech. I know the individual members are extremely liberal, but they are free speech advocates, even for undesirable groups like the KKK, so it doesn't seem like they play favorites. During the Reagan era, the biggest insult in Republican circles was being a card-carrying member of the ACLU. So is the ACLU okay? Chris, it's a very interesting question. Um, The ACLU is a left-wing organization with a left-wing agenda. Does the ACLU sometimes stand on a principle of free speech that is truly about free speech and not just about advancing the left-wing agenda? Yes, indeed. But if you look at, for example, when the ACLU will and will not bring a case, there's a tendency to go after Christian religious organizations on First Amendment issues and not, for example, Muslim religious organizations on First Amendment issues, right? There's there's certainly cases where the ACLU is um, showing a left-wing bias. You see that a lot. And then there's an- another part of this is that the ACLU on the issue of, I think it's, I'd have to look at their recent positions, but I'm pretty sure on, on hate speech, they're very... Uh, they take the position they're getting closer and closer to speech equals violence, which is the eradication of the First Amendment, really. If speech equals violence just because you don't like certain speech. Um, but I'd have to look at some of their more recent uh, decisions. But what when they bring cases and when they don't, that alone shows you the ACLU is a left wing is a left wing group. But even left wing groups can do good things. You know, Tulsi Gabbard hates the president, is a progressive, wants Medicare for all and believes in climate change. But I've been sitting here saying, well, at least she doesn't want third trimester abortion and doesn't say that Trump supporters are all Nazis. So she's, you know, there's good things. There's bad things. Uh, ACLU is is mostly about destroying the ACLU really at its core now has been leveraged by the left to destroy uh, Judeo-Christian culture and, and conservatism in America. That that is the ultimate. It's not protecting freedom. And I could pull some examples of why that is, but I'd have to do a little bit of a deep dive on it. Brandon Buck, I agree with another member of Team Buck. Joker was boring. Story and acting were good, but pace is very slow. And sorry, but there was a spoiler of sorts. Blah, blah, Brandon. All right, Brandon. Brandon, you, sir, are entitled to your opinion. Uh, I think that I will say this about Joker since we're back on the topic. When I saw that it's two hours, this is a big mistake. Most movies, you really want it to be 90 minutes. You want an hour and a half, three acts, 30 minutes an act. That's it. That's the that's the sweet spot. Now, of course, there's Braveheart, which went on for like 10 years. I mean, there's some movies that are amazing and are very long. But usually, I, I think that you could have cut 20 minutes out of out of Joker, for example, and made it a better movie. If you cut 20 minutes out, it would be a better movie. That's what I think. Uh, it was too long. 
So I would agree with that. I wouldn't say it's boring, but I do think it was too long. Let's see. Kathy. Hey, Buck. Listening to the podcast, there's a time in the podcast where Beto was talking about the president using Nazi tactics, and you start speaking in the background. I don't think you meant for Beto to speak over you. Just thought I'd mention this, since this is not the first time I've heard this happen. Shields high. Kathy from Georgia. Yeah, Kathy, thank you. People brought this to my attention last night. Um, Producer Mark has a brilliant strategy for me to avoid this called don't talk during clips, Buck. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's a great strategy. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it's also uh, part of the new studio operation, so I'll, I won't put all the blame on you. Thank you. It's it a little bit more than too. just, it's not just all about the Buckster yeah. getting a little too excited, but yeah, no, we will try to avoid that. Mark will wave me off now, because I sometimes like to talk while these clips are going in the past, but we don't really have the setup here for that, so we will, we'll try to avoid that um, for a whole a whole bunch of reasons. Um, oh, wow, look at this. Andy writes, hello, Buck. Just wanted to say you have a fan base in New Zealand that really enjoys your show. Oh, we got some Kiwi team Buck. A lot of us here closely follow American politics and relate to conservative and libertarian ideologies. Our country has dramatically changed with the election of a far-left government, and following our recent terror attack, things are moving very quickly. Imagine Justin Trudeau, but with venom. Anyway, your show is always on point, and that Hans Gruber voice the other week had me in hysterics. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Andy. Well, Andy, not quite the land down under, right? That's Australia. But whatever we, whatever the cool way to say New Zealand, the land of of uh, Frodo and the Hobbits, because that's where they filmed the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Sure. Uh, yeah. Just uh, thank you to Kiwi Team Buck, man, down there in New Zealand, and thank you for writing in. And I don't know, was it the Hans Booby? Was it that accent or was it the British like Mr. Takagi? I can't remember now, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's the show. Check it out on uh podcast. Tell people. Shields high.